0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Cheese.
2: Cheese. 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 Cheese.
3: Cheese. Cheese. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on cutting the curd. My guest this, for this month's book segment is Gianna Caldwell, whose newest book is The Small-Scale Dairy. Welcome. Hi, Diane. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Gianna previous books were The Small-Scale Cheese Business and Mastering Artisan Cheese Making, and the subtitle of the new book is The Complete Guide to Milk Production for the Home and Market. And wow, this book... Includes so much information that I thought I should know and didn't know yet And in a very friendly and palatable format What made you write this particular book?
4: Uh, Well, having our own small farm Mm -hmm. And struggling and dealing and enjoying the day-to-day issues That trying to produce really high-quality raw milk brings Mm -hmm. I wanted to try to be able to share all the little things that we've learned all the little tricks that help empower the small producer and inform the small producer on how to do it really well and do it really well consistently, which is a a challenge for any dairy of any size.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, And I like to help the little people, if you will, the little farmers, have the same kind of access to that information as somebody might at a larger scale
3: hmm And how? Um, what does it add to the first book, the small-scale cheese business?
4: The small. Well, the, if I had known that I was going to write this other one, I probably would have left some things out of the small-scale cheese business mm-hmm. and added some other things in there. It's too early to do a full new edition of the first book. Uh-huh. Um, but if I did, I didn't focus in the first book on the dairy side of it. Okay. It was all on the cheese plant side. And nothing to do with animal husbandry and how that relates to high-quality milk.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So
4: this book is specifically for the milk.
3: Okay, um, it's more milk-oriented. Okay, right. Now right. you know so much in so many different fields and directions. How did okay. you learn it all?
4: Well, I came. I come from a family of uh, uh, do-it-yourselfers, and in in the truest sense, as far as. There weren't the options of hiring people, mm-hmm. or um, if you wanted something done, you did it yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's ingrained in me, and it's also somewhat just of a—it's um, an empowering thing to think. You know, if somebody else could learn to do something, I probably can learn it too.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And um, then, then sharing that, I, I like to have a lot of things going on. I like—I was originally a nurse, mm-hmm. and if any profession requires keeping a lot of balls in the air at one time, I would say it's nursing, mm-hmm. so I seem to like that sort of a thing, but um, yeah, it's it's nice to learn to do things yourself, and then we kind of have the philosophy, or you, everybody experiences this, if you if you do it yourself and you're not satisfied with the job, it feels entirely different than if you hire somebody and pay them, <laughs> and don't like the results,
3: so uh-huh. you,
4: you can live with it differently. Uh-huh. Not that we don't try to do everything well, you understand. Right, <laughs> right.
3: You can be mad at yourself instead of feeling gypped. Yes,
4: exactly. <laughs>
3: okay. And you can choose
4: to redo, or you can choose right. to try to get better.
3: Right. Now, right. reading and studying, um, when you started the farm, did you and your husband split up areas to investigate or to be in charge of?
4: No, and that's been a very interesting organic um, process. I would say it, in some ways it was just a natural Original split that has now merged into both of us doing most things.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, it originally the goats were mine and my, our daughters, our youngest daughters, and um, all of that just fell to me. And then we've always been a good team. My husband and I, we've been together over thirty years.
2: And mm-hmm.
4: We've always wanted to help each other in the best way we can. And mm-hmm. so as he saw me struggling to get more done with the animals, he started doing more things with the animals and. It's, every year something divvies up a little differently, I'd mm-hmm. say, based on um, what those demands are. When I'm writing a book, he's super supportive and doing more things for me that mm-hmm. he wouldn't do at other times.
2: And right.
4: He's, he also has commitments. He's running for the board of the American Chief Society and other things that then I try to pull, take up the slack.
3: Then Okay. Yeah. For our listeners, um, let me list some of the various areas of expertise that are covered in the book. I'm just touching on them. Um, there's a lot about animals, cow, sheep and goats. There's a lot about milk, biochemistry and cleanliness. A lot about milking, decisions and procedures and cleanup and the dairy setup, rooms and again more cleanup and lab tests. How long did the writing take of this book?
4: Well, it's, it's kind of funny, Diane. It took Probably twice as long as it should have,
3: because. <laughs> but for
4: well, for an entirely different reason, uh, my my editor and I originally envisioned. Well, I envisioned the book as a very different book, mm-hmm. and I finished that book uh-huh. and turned turned it in on time. I'm always on time. Okay. Oh, and um, yeah, <laughs> another thing that was ingrained in me, um, but I. Then, as we as she read through it, some things weren't working well for her, and I I credit Chelsea Green, who are extremely great publishers, mm-hmm. um, for being having the foresight to see that this wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working is because I had attempted to have uh, excuse me, gear it toward an audience of both consumer and producer, uh-huh. and when in my heart I'm really more. Um, expertise lies with helping the producers, right? So then we looked, we talked about it, and talked about it, and um, decided to rewrite the whole thing to uh, focus just on the producer, with the hope that a very serious raw milk consumer mm-hmm. would be interested in it, also. Mm-hmm. So it still didn't take any longer than the other two books. I, I, I'm averaging about two years
2: per mm-hmm. book
4: from start to finish, and uh, it just it's um. It's a it's a fun process. Mm-hmm. I like I like these long term processes. Okay, or,
3: yeah. so when you changed the plan, did you go back and write more in depth on many of the topics? Yeah. Okay. Yes,
4: definitely. I got to focus really deeply on the food safety part of it and uh, all the things that only a producer would want to delve that deeply into. All
3: right, all right. So. Um, the first plan changed into the second plan with the editor's help.
4: Oh, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and writing a book such as this is definitely a team effort. An author, if there, unless I'm just the only one that needs help,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: uh, an author should rely on the wisdom of a publisher, I hope they are listening now, <laughs> in, in knowing how something appears to a different audience. Right. And, and um, how to make that book meet its goals. You don't want to have a book where people get it and then they feel left wanting. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not what I want to do. So I, I appreciate that sort of a push.
3: Mm-hmm. Where do you fit writing into your day?
4: <laughs> that's always a question on... Um, Luckily, I do, like I mentioned, have like to have multiple things going on, uh-huh. and there are many days where there's no writing that occurs,
2: mm-hmm. and then
4: I also write articles for uh, a couple of magazines, too, so on uh, different kinds of writing. And a lot of times, though, I'm just thinking about the, what I might be working on and then working a lot during the slower season,
2: mm-hmm. which is
4: which is late fall through uh, late winter. Mm-hmm. And um, when I'm traveling, I, I can take my little computer and work on the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, no angry birds for me. <laughs> 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 just use words, I hope. Right. And, um, yeah, and, and I'm pretty efficient in mm-hmm. with the time here on the farm. I like to... to um, make sure that things time doesn't get wasted on effort that for other chores that mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. really map, need to be there.
3: Were you a writer to start with? You said you were a nurse, but were you also writing before?
4: Well, I don't know if you had one of these when you were growing up, but the little uh, school book where every year your mom would put your picture in there and you would sign your name and you would write what you wanted to be when you grew up. And uh-huh. Um, so far, I've I've hit on all of them. I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be an artist. I was a career visual artist for quite a few years, and mother was in there and writer and all of that, so I'm one of these people that I, I, I think that a, a career can be, you can have many careers in mm-hmm. your life and, and be equally serious and equally committed to all of them. And, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's okay. a, I did always want to write, but I wanted to write fiction. And I would still think that would be fun someday, but I don't think I have the skill for that at this point Mm -hmm. of the authors, similar to the authors that I would like to read. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's nice. to. It feels really good to help people.
2: Mm -hmm. And
4: given how much work this career is, it feels like it's um, both two birds where I can get the satisfaction of writing and also have it contribute to our industry.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm Mhm. Um, what were your favorite parts to write? What are the most fun? Well, I learned
4: a lot. My favorite thing overall about writing any book so far is how much I learned. Mm -hmm. And I'm not kidding when I say it's actually a selfish act in having the excuse then to research and study and learn something more about what you're already doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think learning the history of milk and the final end, I don't know if you read the very last little like, epilogue part of the book, but um, it really changed me, this process did of writing this particular book, in feeling much more strongly about becoming a food rights a- a advocate, in mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the ridiculous level of um, oversight to some degree, right. and, the, and the lack of, many con- of a great number, portion of the consumer's. In being willing to take responsibility for choosing food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's um, a paradox of, because if consumers are wanting protection, then the, that's what will happen. But, or it will, an attempt will be made at that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I liked what it, how it made me feel at the end and mm-hmm. feeling more, feeling more strongly mm-hmm. about that. So
3: more dedicated and, to the to the current food cause.
4: Yes, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. important that is, and how important it is to to be informed as a consumer, and not just look at food as something that ha- is there all the time and mm-hmm. it's not static. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I think that was my favorite part of it.
3: Okay. Yeah. Um, what I found striking is how your one of your early mission missions in the book is to give people the emotional reality. Of of this life, yeah. um, of the of even just when you're talking about the animal lives and yeah. deaths, um, r- you're really trying to help people understand what they're getting into if they have this fantasy of you know getting a farm and making, you know milking cows and making cheese.
4: Right, and it's wonderful that there is that romance around crafting beautiful food and producing it. Mm-hmm. But it, it,
2: it's
4: and people can wrap their minds pretty readily around the level of work, physical work mm-hmm. and the hours, but if you're at all sensitive or um, caring about the animals, and let's hope we all are, it's, it can be quite painful. Right. It's, um I think if you were perhaps raised doing this, you might have not a tougher but a, a ability to move on more quickly. Uh-huh. Our our youngest daughter, who has gone through many lives and deaths here on the farm, and um, had to let go with a lot of things, and uh, at the same time try to save a lot of things, um, has a super uh, balanced perspective on life and death that I'm mm-hmm. a little a little bit jealous of. <laughs>
3: uh-huh.
4: but um, it's it's some um, it's. I don't want to be morbid about it, but mm-hmm. you do. Death is around every corner here,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and that is sometimes exhausting. Right. And you
3: and death I of animals that you've grown to love.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a it's a really good life as mm-hmm. far as reality. Mm-hmm. You're, you're never allowed to <laughs> uh-huh. be too far from reality.
3: <laughs> what would you say surprises new dairy farmers the most? Say that again? What, what would you say surprises new dairy farmers the most?
4: Oh, I don't know if I have a good singular answer for that.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, it's such a changing, everything's changing all the time, mm-hmm. and everything's not. I mean, every, your day-to-day routine is real similar, but then, um, for example, feed prices have gone up, hay since we started, which is only our license since eight years ago, has gone up seventy five percent. And it may go up more this year. And mm-hmm. that's not something that ever could have been anticipated in a business plan. Right. Uh, so I think the uh, that would be probably I don't know if we it surprised us the most
3: mm-hmm. if, uh, what were the hardest challenges for you?
4: Um let's see. I, dealing with the animal loss, like mm-hmm. I was saying before, is always going to be the hardest
2: for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, most of us have these animals at this level because we want to have these animals.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And then you start, you realize that they're not pets. They can mm-hmm. be companions, but they're not pets in the sense that most people can devote money to for mm-hmm. that veterinary care mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um that would probably be the biggest challenge. Like
3: you have to make a financial decision at a certain point. A
4: financial decision decision that affects somebody's life.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep, yeah,
4: and that's that's tough. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's a re, it's, again. I said like I said, it's a reality, and um, I I hope that over time that a great part of the consumers will come to enjoy paying more for uh, products where animals are involved because that will mean the farmer can afford to take better care of them.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's time for our mid-show uh, break. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd and interviewing Gian Caldwell, author of the extremely inform- informative book, The Small-Scale Dairy, and we'll be back in a moment.
1: Understanding when you are away, can't use my heart to think away the time. In my room, I will await you, and so soon I will delete you, and tie your finger right on up to my. You are listening to Josephine by the Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network.org.
4: only farm in the United States that has its own USDA inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to
2: sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteo pastures.com till I get you right, my dear.
1: So know that I will love you and my heart sings high above you. It takes away the doubt I have of fear. Sweet Josephine, you live in my dreams. Sleep right by
3: We're back on cutting the curd. This is Diane Stemple interviewing Giannicles Caldwell, and I thought uh, we'd talk a little bit um, about the major brouhaha uh, that just occurred <laughs> a week or two ago when the yeah. FDA sounded like they were going to enforce the rules against aging cheese on wood shelves.
4: Right, right, and and I guess that they they clarified that. Uh, And it is truly that there is, and and we all have understood this for some time, that there is no specific wording against Asian cheese on wood shelves, but there is specific wording in what they call the good manufacturing practices of food contact surfaces being what is called cleanable, Mm -hmm. which means smooth and easily cleaned. And, of course, wood is not that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to give them quite a bit of understanding we should all give them some understanding as far as the FDA the yes <laughs> the FDA.
3: Well, you know okay okay we'll give them understanding
4: <laughs> yes uh, there the good manufacturing practices that evolved around the cheese industry were around the industry that existed at the time
2: mm-hmm. which
4: was not very artisan mm-hmm. and if there was any small pro- any producers aging on wood they would have been hard to find uh-huh. Um this the current way that the cheese industry is working now towards a lot more artisan production is going to require some tweaking of those. And I'm, I'm on the American Cheese Society Regulatory and Academic Committee,
2: mm-hmm. which is a
4: fantastic way for us to help the, uh, the regulators learn a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. We need to, as producers, define what good manufacturing practices look like in an artisan facility and that's that's something worth working on and uh, you know they, the, the way the laws are now truly did reflect what was happening on for the majority now it becomes more difficult in my opinion the larger the food system grows the more likely it is that regulators will want to streamline and make everything look the same
2: mm-hmm. for,
4: for their ease of knowing what to what to look at. You know, you come into a little facility like ours, and it looks greatly different from anything even like ten times our size. Right. And when I say look, I mean in what you see happening, what kind of products, but it doesn't mean that we can't do it at just the same exact level of quality and food safety, but it, ju- it will look different.
3: Right. And your book so, is about yeah. all the ways to be as safe as possible.
4: right. Right so it's um it's um I don't mind at all being a part of that, and I really was so excited to see the huge uh, back cry or backlash of um of uh of um, cheese people, people everywhere. Yeah, right? cheese people yeah, rallying yeah. together. And, yes, it was
3: quite impressive.
4: Oh, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All over I the Facebook as if we were and the, on the internet. and fired a warning shot right across the bow.
3: <laughs> and then it seemed to have worked. I mean, that was the exciting part. It, yeah. You know, usually you feel like you're throwing stones hopelessly, but yes. it seemed a week or so later they were taking it back.
4: Right, and 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 who knows it. It is such a big body of uh, the people and um, offices and laws, and and maybe they they were right in that it was just somebody overstepping their authority as far as making it sound as if it was a blanket statement. Who uh-huh. knows? Uh-huh. And I don't I don't think it matters at this point. I mm-hmm. just I'm actually really glad it happened. It, um I think it set a nice position. And it will give the cheese, all of us cheesemakers, a little bit more impetus to keep working toward defining mm-hmm. what good practices are, best practices.
3: Were you involved with the writing of the ACS statement?
4: All the, uh, you know, not so much as our, our fantastic uh, executive director, uh, Nora Weiser, but um, we all have our little input and mm-hmm. um, our little little things to add from our perspective and it's a great it's a great committee, it's a great team, it's mm-hmm. a great organization.
3: And that was great having that, you know, come out and be so uh steadfast and reassuring.
4: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well at the same time wanting to be part of making things change and not setting up big adversarial situations.
3: Right, right. Right. So let's get back to the book. Some of my questions, um, you just have so much content, and I have just a bunch of questions about different little things. (laughs) Um, You talk about having milk-tasting sessions on the Uh farm. Yeah. Now, what kind of milks do you offer, and who comes to the sessions?
4: Well, a couple times a year, we have what we call our farmstead cheesemaker short course, Mm -hmm. where about six people that are really wanting to learn how to make handmade artisan cheese on a farm Mm -hmm. from the milk of their own animals.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Come and spend three days making cheese and um, and learning to analyze milk for quality, bacteria counts,
2: Mm -hmm.
4: all of that. And a sensory analysis of milk is important. Mm -hmm. And So I'll get milk from uh, we have two different breeds of goats so we'll separate out those and then I have on great neighbors that have some dairy cows that get some milk from them. And we do a variety, the same lab tests on all the different samples and combine that then with the sensory.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And it's the uh, milk, I think, is going to be the new frontier for trying to appreciate its differences. hmm our society is kind of accustomed to the ubiquitous white gallon that is the same across the country.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll
4: find tiny little differences, but in animals that are fed similar diets, it's all going to be very similar, which is a great goal for a a massive system. Mm -hmm. But if you want to start tasting the local milk and tasting what those animals are eating through the milk, and, of course, that's going to translate for we cheesemakers into some pretty unique cheese. Right. Yeah, so I think uh, training our taste buds to taste the milk is the first step. I, I don't think any cheesemaker can make cheese if they don't know, how the, know what mm-hmm.
2: tastes
3: good mm-hmm. <laughs> in milk. Right. Now, yeah. one thing you say in the book is that individual animals... Some have more pleasant milk than others.
4: Yes, that's very true.
3: I did not and, know this, this yeah, little fact.
4: Yeah. In fact, I love some, yeah, some of them, and who knows if it's nutritional imbalances for some. Right, hormon- what do you think
3: causes it?
4: Yep, yep, hormonal, well, it could be many things. Hormonal differences, mm-hmm. a preference, if they're allowed to browse freely, mm-hmm. they may prefer some things that others don't.
3: And that and, makes their milk tastier
4: it sure or, or mm-hmm. less <laughs>
3: uh-huh okay
4: yeah some animals have more milk sugar in their milk and and that will of course make it more pleasantly sweet will
3: you okay. will you breed the animals with better tasting milk
4: well i think you should it's if you have that luxury and you're that small mm-hmm. to know how each individual tastes year round
2: mm-hmm. that's
4: definitely something but only if that same animal is Good in other ways, you know, okay. with volume and
2: mm-hmm.
4: disposition.
2: Mm-hmm. So, For the there are dairy other...
4: farmer you want you want cows and goats and sheep that are good workers and uh, pleasant to be around and <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
4: not not too unhappy. They need to be happy.
3: Well, you know, there's that advertisement that says happy cows make good yeah. make better milk. <laughs> so, it could be a bad disposition has good milk.
4: <laughs> uh, that is a good theory to investigate
3: <laughs> Okay um, You know, you write a lot about the lifestyle and finances of cheesemakers And it just, as a cheesemonger, uh, especially one promoting American cheeses I'm always explaining how it's a lot of hard work and no one's getting rich Right And a lot of the consumers that are a little bit more distance from the cheesemakers you know, don't like the prices of uh, artisanal cheese.
4: Yeah. And well, I think they have a point, and I would, would hesitate, wouldn't hesitate to say that probably most of us cheesemakers couldn't afford our own cheese.
2: <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But
4: um, it is a system that is completely dependent on the farm. You know, no different price supports like um, you might find in Europe. Right. That help keep those prices down. And uh, none of us, oh, gosh, I don't know any small-scale cheesemaker that p- keeps track of their hours. And
3: uh, Right, I'm thinking of but, hours. That, that would, you would definitely look very underpaid if you kept oh, track yeah. of hours. Uh, we don't
4: even want to know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I really always, whenever I'm speaking or teaching, I emphasize that at the small scale that we are,
2: mm-hmm.
4: it's, a, it's a lifestyle business,
2: mm-hmm.
4: meaning that you, your payoff is being able to do it.
2: Right. And as right. long
4: as you love that work and that lifestyle, if you want to be on the land, if you don't want to go to concerts,
2: mm-hmm. then
4: then it's worth it. But if you're looking to have some sort of investment that you can sell or um, you know put anything away, mm-hmm. it needs to be much larger.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
4: And um, that's, that's fine with me I, I like it so Okay. <laughs> another,
3: another one of your interesting facts Is that when there's a sudden change In your milk In its test results or its, its quality mm-hmm. It's not usually the animals But all the other factors That you discuss in the book Like cleanliness and chilling yes. and, uh, Could you talk more about that?
4: Oh, things can just change so quickly In fact, one of the tests we do Every time on our cheese batches the last two were not impressive at all. The The milk was yeasty and fermented poorly in this particular test that I do. Mm-hmm. And I had changed one thing in the process. I had switched from one type of uh, little liquid detergent that I wash the udders with mm-hmm. to another. Mm-hmm. So now I've changed back, okay. and I'll check that test tomorrow.
3: Now, what and made it, you change?
4: Um, I'm always searching for something a little more... Um, environmentally friendly.
3: Okay. okay.
4: And uh, breaks down in the septic system better. Right. All those things. So I, I tried a different product.
3: And I thought what was interesting in the book is how you want to dilute it so it works but doesn't leave a residue.
4: Yes. Any chemical, especially, and of course, chemical shouldn't be a bad word because everything is made of chemicals. Right. <laughs> but the dairy cleaning chemicals and sanitizing chemicals. In order for them to work properly, they need to be diluted properly,
2: mm-hmm.
4: used at the right temperature,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and then um, in accordance to how your water is. Right. Some people have very acidic water.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
4: if they go to use an alkaline detergent, which they all are, mm-hmm. it won't work well. Right. So all those things, they shouldn't be used without understanding their application because first of all, they're expensive, mm-hmm. so you don't want to use more than you need to, and using less than you need to won't even do the job. So, right.
3: Right. yes, That's a lot of details. What percent yes. of time um, do you feel is spent milking versus cleaning?
4: Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot more. Lot of time cleaning, yeah. and uh, it's not even. We have a, a person staying here now to watch, and she's. She's amazed at how much time is spent cleaning. <laughs>
3: you know, it and doesn't said, sound yeah, that, that romantic. Rear, rear. It,
4: doesn't,
3: it doesn't sound that romantic the cleaning part.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but that's the time when your mind if you once you get your routine down and don't have to think about every step quite uh-huh, much.
3: Uh-huh. You can
4: think about other things during that time and Plan your dinner
3: or something. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> daydream. Daydream. Yes. I used to sing when I had to cut up, you know, 100 pieces of cheese. I would oh, just sing nice. to myself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, that's it for this month's book in- book review on Cutting the Curd. I want to thank you, Gianna Clis, for uh, being a great guest and for your fine book, The Small-Scale Dairy. Thank you, Diane, and thanks for your great show. Oh, thank you. And uh, my next segment is on July 21st, and I'll be looking forward to talking to Michael Paternity, author of the cheese fiction book, The Telling Room. So I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,